thus began a musical journey for me and so many other people, a journey that Lyle Mays, Pat Metheny, Mark Egan, and Danny Gottlieb began back in 1978. When Lyle Mays died this past Monday, February 10th, 2020, I right away texted my friend, keyboardist Jay Rowe, and he immediately said, we have to do a podcast. So this is our tribute podcast to Lyle Mays and all that he meant to us over many, many years. Here it is, me and Jay Rowe. Well, Jay, I imagine on Monday night, February 10th, like me, you were just kind of shocked is really the best word to describe it. It's the last thing I expected to see on my Facebook feed was that Lyle Mays had passed away. I saw it via an old friend, Pat Coyle's um, uh, entry on Facebook. Um, Pat was actually Lyle's roommate in college at uh, North Texas State. And he was the first person, I think, anywhere to post that Lyle had passed. And uh, uh, there were people, of course, who were like, oh, this can't be true. It's a hoax, et cetera. But I knew that Pat would never write something like that if if he didn't know for hadn't heard from the family or whatever. So uh, um, was I the was I your source for hearing about that, or had you already heard about it some other way? I saw it on Facebook uh, right away as well. Um, not right away, but soon after. And actually, Ron Lawrence, you know, my good friend Ron, had called me. He had found out about it, and. Uh, I mean, I hadn't heard much about any activities Lyle was doing probably over the last seven years or so. I know. Except for maybe. Yeah, he did. He did. He did a project, I think, at at, at at Cal State in Pasadena. I think that's where Caltech is located. But I know he. I know he did. He did an interesting project with some of the other professors there who happen to be musicians. And I'm sure that's easy to find on, on YouTube for anybody who might be interested. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think the last thing he did was put out an album in 2016 that was basically a jazz trio or quartet record that um, it, it actually was s- some lost tapes that were found from, I think, 2005. So, you know, you're right. He really hadn't been doing anything with music. In fact, he had described himself in the last interview I had heard with him as he described himself as a software engineer manager. Um, So he really, I think he said something along the lines of the music business. He said, I didn't leave the music business. The music business left me. In fact, he said it left all of us. And... um, but at the same time, he sounded fine with what he was doing. I had heard from friends in L.A. where he where he lived and where he passed away that he was doing things like coaching his daughter's soccer team, and he was perfectly happy with the life that he was leading and not longing for what had been. He felt like, I think he felt like he'd done that, 
and he had so many interests in his life, and he was so good at so many things that were not necessarily music-related that he was happy to pursue one of those things as long as music wasn't didn't seem like it wanted him at the moment. I I, I think that's how he felt about it. But um, but um, yeah, I mean, I know you know you and I have talked about Lyle Mays and the influence that we both had um, from the Pat Metheny group and particularly the compositions, which Lyle had 50% to do with, you know, um, and he, maybe his name wasn't on the group. Well, not maybe, it wasn't on the group, but he was more than just a founding member. He was part of the core and both as a, as a soloist, but more importantly, as a composer. And um, I remember you and I talking way back when, when I think we first started playing together, I'm thinking 1997, something like that. And I don't know if you even remember, but you said that one of your end goals was to get to the place Lyle Mays was at. I don't, do you remember saying <laughs> that to me? Well, that's, you know, Lyle, Lyle's playing has, has always been a, a benchmark for, for, for me. Um, the composing as well, which I think was, was part of the success of the Pat Metheny group. The fact that, you know, in general, even, I mean, Pat's playing as well. Those two guys together really had a perfect marriage of simplicity and sophistication. The thing I think with Lyle, and it was in his writing, of course, but it was also in his playing. And I think it's what you're, you're getting at. He was very, uh, uh, maybe um, obsessed with the idea of order and dramatic features, arcs, and what he even called bumps in the music. And in his soloing, you hear all that. He's not, he's not playing the way a jazz improviser plays as much as he's playing the way a classical composer who's improvising plays in other words he's very focused on the dramatics of it the organization of it and so i think that simplicity that you're referring to is not so much simplicity as it is clarity and focus and i think that that's the 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 thing that as a pianist um and as a keyboardist but particularly as a pianist was what set him set him apart um, but I, I think it's you know one of the things that I think is important with his playing is that he really didn't see jazz and improvisation as the same thing he saw them as two different things um, and so he and I think he resented the idea that an improviser was supposed to play swing you know <laughs> um, because to him you know I mean and I think it's fair to say regardless um, of what anybody thinks I think it's fair to say that Bach was probably a, a fantastic improviser and Mozart was a fantastic improviser um, so you know that's an area that I think comes through in his playing obviously in his writing because that's where he's really showing all of all of that that drama and and organization and focus but when when somebody like that takes a solo they don't just like take a solo i mean they really they really have structure and focus and an arc to it that um you know one, uh, well for example the song first circle 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking in particular the live version, although the studio version's great too, but the live version that's on the road to you is kind of a more expansive solo in some ways. And uh, you really see the all of those elements I was just talking about in that solo. very comp it's compositional i mean he's more exactly it's not merely he's not merely improvising over chord changes it's almost it's like it's like he's composing another piece exactly within within the song itself um within within his improvisation and it's and it's thematic you know like in in in, and it's developed themes and 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 what i always loved about his playing was how He'd start out, you know, with 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 the simple, the simpler, more melodic themes, and then and then he'd always build up into the 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 big choral stuff that he would always do, right? Um, right. And that was really, I think, a you know a, a, a focal point of of his whole style, and uh, and it happened, you know, it happened time and time again. I don't know. I, I, you know, I don't even know if you'd say it was a formula, but well, if it was a formula, it worked. It worked for twenty years. I oh mean, no, no! If it's a formula, like, it's it's a style like any writer has yeah. a style, you know. And yeah, you're hitting the nail on the head. I think with 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 what he what he did. You know, another song that I 
just loved when it came out and going back and listening to it last night and so many of Lyle's things and the things he did with Pat Metheny group was a song from Wichita Falls called Ozark. And, um, you know, one thing that was really interesting to me about that, it was very different, you know, it was quite different than the first circle solo and what we were just, you were just talking about in that it's really hits you right from the beginning. It kind of grabs you, uh, and the intensity is there. Um, and in fact, and I hope you take this as a compliment, some of it reminds me of you. I was like, this is Jay. This is this is Jay at his best right here. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know if that's a coincidence or an influence or, you know, great minds think alike. I'm, I'm not sure. But um, but Ozark is a fascinating solo that he plays on that. And it's intense and it's driving and super rhythmic, which is, of course, part of why I think of you. solo hit you and am i right did that did that actually have some kind of influence on your playing definitely um that was that might be one of his most linear solos in terms of you know faster lines and stuff and and what 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 really struck me about that and the more i learned about lyle um you know around that same time maybe a couple years earlier Keith Keith Jarrett had 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 done the uh, belonging record, and that that song that had a song on it called the wind up. Um, oh yeah, and, and that middle section improvised thing of Ozark. I mean, I could to me, and some people might disagree with me, but I mean, Lyle was definitely a big Keith Jarrett fan. He would talk about you'd hear him talk about you know Keith's solo record facing you. And and how he listened to that record for many years, and 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 that's that was Lyle's benchmark. Um, that's where where Lyle always wanted to end up as a player, and 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 his playing on Ozark really is uh, 
you know, just the chromaticism of those lines and, and, and all that stuff. I mean, I was, I was listening to that a lot, probably the summer, I don't know, the summer of my senior, or, you know, senior year of high school, first year of first year at New England conservatory. I mean, that's what, that's what I, I, what I, you know, what I was listening to heavily and really, and really after that. So, you know, I, that, that, that stuff probably came into my playing as much as it could have without me even, you know, you try. actually yeah. transcribing that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I never transcribed anything. You know, it's like when I, when I studied with Fred Hirsch at the time, you know, I don't know if Fred, if Fred, if Fred hears this podcast and hears me say what I'm about to say, you know, I, I it'll be interesting if he agrees or disagrees, but the way I heard him, you know, was was that he was kind of anti-transcribing, you know? He 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 used to say, "Oh, it's, you really gotta, you know, have the stuff come into you through osmosis." So, taking Fred's advice, I would, I mean, I would go to sleep, you know, listening to every Thelonious Monk records, but but the Matheny stuff in particular. I mean, when Travels came out, I was I was definitely going to sleep many nights in a row. Listening to that in in Ozark was one of the one of the tunes that I repeatedly listened to, along with Keith Jarrett's "The Wind Up," and then eventually the Matheny Group ended up playing "The Wind Up." Um, yeah, I remember in, that in their that's shows. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah, so that's why I know it. I think, and then went back, you know, to the original version. Yeah, no, what you're saying about um, it's interesting. I just want to go back to a point you made about this thing of transcribing. I've never been a big transcriber either. Occasionally I've done it because sometimes I'm like, what is that? What's happening there? You know, I just want to know what's happening. But the idea of transcribing is a way to infuse your solos with the genius of a Lyle Mays or a Keith Jarrett or a Pat Metheny or a Jim Hall or anybody. It just doesn't work that way. Certainly not for me. And it sounds like it doesn't work that way for you or for Fred. And that osmosis thing, you know, really, um, is is he's on to something there you know well yeah after you learn how to play over chord changes i mean you know the 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 problem with only transcribing is that you really don't learn how to play over chord changes oh well all you're gonna get is 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 licks from other people i mean yeah I, i i and if it's not you know hopefully you can take those licks and those motifs and you can eventually flip them around inside out upside down um, and, you know, turn them into something that's your own. But, you know, I mean, that's a hard way to get there, in my opinion. And you end up copying things. And, and as you said earlier, we can't help but have influences come into our playing, whether we like them or not. So to actually go and copy something is kind of like asking for it, in my opinion, you know, and you're not going to have a style and you're not going to have a voice or at best you'll have the style and the voice of somebody else who's already done it. And it's probably already moved on <laughs> right from that. Well, place. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because, because Lyle, you know, and Pat, you know, they both, both of them did not play the way they played on, you know, watercolors or, or, uh, um, you know, the, the, the first record, the white record, American garage, right. Right. um, they're, they're playing, which was at a high level. Um, right. 
but it, it, it evolved like over 10 years and they're not, they're not the same players, you know, they're, they're who they are stylistically, but, but, but they, they grew. It's like you watch them grow up. They, they might've been yeah. one of the few, you know, I, I would say that my miles Davis was the same way and that he was very young when he started out. Mm-hmm. Um, but, 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 Pat Pat and Lyle's development, you could you could almost compare it to Brian Wilson or the Beatles, you know, the way they the way they grew and how Yeah, and, and how, you see it. You can hear yeah. it on the records. I mean, I think Matheny more than Lyle in some ways, because Lyle, and this is by his own admission, was playing the way he was playing by the time he was in his early twenties. Um he he said, I'm I'm not really that much better now than I was when I was twenty two. And that kind of bring, <laughs> yeah. which is kind of amazing, but he's right. You know, I remember seeing them on their first tour where they drove around in a van. Um, the stories were that they made like a hundred bucks and Pat would put 20 bucks into the gas tank and give everybody else 20 bucks. <laughs> you know, that was it. <laughs> but we saw them play at a little club in, in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. called The Cellar Door who had everybody played there, every type of music you could imagine from one night to the next. And we saw them play there. And I remember thinking, because this was when they were just putting out the first album. I remember thinking, Pat is really good. And someday he's going to be great. But Lyle, he's already great. <laughs> you know, it was clear yeah. that he had it. He had it already. Um, and so I think he was right about that. And that kind of brings me to another song I wanted to talk about, um, particularly Lyle's playing on it. And that's a song that they recorded um, very early when they were both like less than 25 years old called Lakes. You, oh, and yeah. I have, you and I have played it and we've recorded on one of my records too and talk about some challenging chord changes. But the way that Lyle plays on that has just always blown me away. He just floats through it. And anybody who's tried to play a song like Lakes or Giant Steps knows that the last thing you do, you you feel like you can do is float through it. And <laughs> he just takes such comfortable liberties with the rhythm and 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 overlapping chords into each other. It's it's really a remarkable solo to the to this day. Um and then I realized, my God, the guy was like 23 years old or whatever, and this is what he was doing at, at that point with an incredibly complex, uh, no matter how easy he makes it sounds, an incredibly complex set of chord changes.
well, he 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 thought clearly enough. You know, he he had he had such an advanced thought process. I think that 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 he didn't have to. He wasn't trying to impress anybody. Although when he when he builds it, you know, the more that thing builds. But once again, you know, that's he he he's starting out. You know, right. gradually building things. Yeah. You know, and then it builds and builds, and then, and I think is that solo only three choruses? I think I think it's. Yep. That's it. Yeah, it's like three choruses, yeah. but like by the by the by the last one, then he's throwing in like the faster lines and and right. and, and all that. And and, he, and and he's the bar lines are getting overlapped too. He's run, you know, he's yeah. he's kind of rhythmically so comfortable with it. Um, obviously, harmonically super comfortable with it, or he couldn't be doing that. Um, but yeah, that's right. And you're right. That's like an early representation of of that thing you were talking about and I was too that compositional structure um that was always in everything he did and influenced me like crazy and I know you too uh that a solo has got to be a composition and and in fact these days the older I get the more I believe in that and I'm not even so sure that I believe in improvisation all the time when something should be a certain way uh, I probably that's the an element of me that's that's maybe different than how some people look at it because there's an excitement and an energy that happens with improvising. But to me, composition is king, whether it's someone's solo or the written part of the song. Um, well, it's yeah, and 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 ultimately, you know, the drama or the entertainment factor. You know, Lyle Lyle said an interesting, funny thing. You know, when I I listened to that that last that interview he, that you mm-hmm. sent to me that he did, and oh, and with he, Michael he Fagan said, from Jazz he, Is, yeah, yeah, and he mentioned something about you know he, I don't know if he said he felt like he he wasn't an entertainer or something or, or he yeah, did. yeah, funny feelings about you know entertaining, but but the thing about it was was that his playing was in itself entertaining. To his fans, because oh, whoever came, whoever yeah. came to see those shows, you know, was waiting for him to play one of his masterpieces of a solo. Right. And I right. mean, every time you saw them, I, I probably saw, you know, the Matheny Group. I don't know, maybe five times or so, mm-hmm. and um, and and it was always like, you know, this roar of applause when oh, he yeah. would finish a solo. Oh yeah. Um, and and and. And when you're watching, you know that kind of thing, um, get a, get applause, and, and that and something like that is able to be entertaining well, in and of itself. Yeah. He's obviously connecting. Well, he said, "Here's what he said," and I think at first when he I I thought about this, I wasn't so sure I agreed with him. The more I think about it, the more I think he's right. He said the musician's job is to do the job, not get all emotional about it. Do the job, do it really well so that the audience can feel whatever emotions they're going to get from a successful performance. Um, So I think that's what he was getting at when he was talking about he's not an entertainer. I don't want to be an entertainer. He means I'm not going to try to draw you in with a bunch of, of theatrics or me looking like I'm emoting to the nth degree. My job is to do this job really well. And within that, then that gives the audience 
the privilege and the pleasure of feeling what they're going to feel from it. And, you know, I, I don't know how you feel about it, but I've thought a lot about that sort of thing in general, um, you know, about sh- what should I be feeling on this song? What should I be feeling on this song? These are things of my own uh, in a performance, or even for that matter, when I'm recording in the studio. But in the end, you know, you have your hands full, sometimes literally, <laughs> trying to do the job really well. And I'm not just talking technically, I'm talking about getting across all the dynamics, getting across the energy of it, getting, and even the bumps as Lyle. I love that, you know, to, because you know what I mean by that. Most musicians do. Not everything's perfect. And sometimes those bumps are a part of, of that human, beautiful human thing that happens that when a person is doing it, not a machine. So that's where he was coming from, I think. And, and it's an interesting you know, it's an interesting concept. And, um, you know, I mean, I know you, the way that you play, and we're pretty similar this way, is, you know, we try to get lost in the music, I think, to the extent that when we finish a solo, we're as surprised as anybody if it came out really well. Not because we don't think we're capable, but because we're not, we're in the moment, right? You know, we're at the, what I call the front <laughs> of the, tra- we're at the front yeah. of the train, you know, we're, 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 we're too busy with what's coming up next and next and next and next to take stock of what we just did. I don't know. Tell me your thoughts about that. Well, how, that how was interesting. That I, you know, I, 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 I do feel that way. Sometimes I'm breathing a sigh of relief, you know, when I, when I, when I make it through something and, 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 and the entertainment aspect of it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it can be complicated because when you're when you're playing music that's a little bit more difficult, you know, that's not exactly easy. Um, you're you're really concentrating hard, and I've I've seen videos of myself where where I'm where I am visibly concentrating, and and I'm almost thinking. All right, you're not smiling enough here. You got to be able to do this and smile a little bit more. But then, you know, I know the audience is with me when I finish a solo like that and it built properly and and it ends right. And then I'm smiling, and then the audience, <laughs> right, you know, sure. is, is 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 uh, you know, giving me that thunderous applause that. That the that the inner seventeen year old in me still enjoys. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, no, no. And I, I like, and Lyle talked about that in that interview. You know, like there were times where he was surprised that it went okay. But that's always, I think, I think any any improviser is going to feel that way because you know you're going on a limb unless you're right. playing the unless you're playing the same solo every night. You know, like 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 so many lead guitarists do. It seems you know, like 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 classic rock. I wish would be more improvised, you know? Right, I mean, right. it's fun Yeah, it's like they're cl- afraid to let the listener hear something different than the solo they expect, you know? Yeah, and that's where the excitement is, you know, when somebody goes out on a limb and tries to play something different. I mean, you're always going to play you, you know, the licks, your signature stuff. I noticed that even with, you know, like like with, with, with Pat, you know, um, oh yeah, I mean that's they just were... no no improviser is. I don't know who said it. Maybe it was Gary Burton. I'm not sure. But if a, a great night improvising is if you play 20 percent stuff that that's really new to you, because the rest of it's you putting what you do together in different ways. It's just 
nobody's that good, you know. <laughs> um, I mean, it, we're humans, you know, uh, and uh, so yeah, that's that's well, you know, I we've been talking a lot about Lyle's piano playing, which of course is very connected to his composing, and as as players of instruments, you know, we're always listening to to the way somebody approaches their instrument because it shows you who they are. But I wanted to end our tribute to Lyle by talking about a composition that he and Pat wrote called Minuano uh, 6-8. And in particular, there's there's a section of it that happens after Pat's guitar solo, um, which I don't really know who wrote what in that. It sounds very much to me like it's Lyle's thing. I'm sure Pat contributed to it. But um, it, it happens after Pat's guitar solo and it has like, it's like a mini piece inside the song that starts off with this bunch of marimbas and piano and then the drums come in and there's this whole different minor thing. And then there's a section with the bass having the theme and this light percussion. And then all these, the fourth section is all these fast lines and counterpoint that ends up with Lyle's synth high on top. And then boom, suddenly you're back into the main theme again. You, you know the section I'm talking about? I just have... I have listened to that. Now, there's something that I transcribed because not because I wanted to improvise that way, but because I wanted to know exactly what was going on. And and I've been very influenced in my own writing, especially since The Grace of Summer Light on forward, with that kind of writing and that kind of use of dramatics and dynamics and tension and release. And um, so that section of that song just just incredible to me. Just, just the, the 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 rhythmic stuff that's going on there, um, you know, it's a whole different vibe. It's a whole different feel um, than than you know the 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 body of that song. Right, and, right. And and to to you know, harmonically, it starts in a similar place, obviously, and then it and then it moves on, and as it and as it as it moves, you know, with each with each section coming in and by the way i saw a live video of that and that was 
um, you know, interesting how how they how they pulled that off. I guess the two percussionists were playing marimba, um, and then and then when it, when it gets to that other part, where I think on the on the studio recording, it might be pizzicato strings that play that line, do 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 right, and all that, and then that's and that's Pat and Steve Rodby. Right, exactly. Part. I noticed that too. Interesting. Yeah. We picked up. We both were wondering how are they going to do that, right? That's exactly so they, right. Yeah. So they they you know, they to but to change to change textures like that I think is what's really what's really important and how you know, the song needed a break. I there People have done that song, you know, without without that section. Oh no! It, well, it, it, it you know, yeah. believe it or not, it 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 can work. It can well, work. no, it can work as a jazz tune, right? That's you know? right, and that's how, and that's kind of how it is. But but it but just he, takes it way outside of the 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 simple realm of a of a jazz tune out of the real book, that that kind of section and that kind of writing, and it just it's that's why I say oh no, because to me, you know, it it it. It is such an inherent part of the composition, and the feeling you get when it comes out of it back into the theme. I mean, you you know, in that same video you're referring to, you can see the whole audience just lift up at that moment. Um, it's it's very powerful, and that's kind of why I wanted to close talking about that and playing that um, because I just think it, in many ways, it sums up the beauty, the genius, uh, the soul of Lyle Mays. Absolutely. And his whole and his arranging concept and and I would say, you know, everything that that tune, it's true Ken, it does sum up, you know, his total genius because when you think of what's in that section just harmonically, rhythmically and 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 texturally from from an instrumental standpoint. Right. I mean, yeah, the orchestration, from, yeah. Yeah, I mean like from like from like what could be you know, perceived as like a like a like a modern percussion piece almost for marimba. You know, moving forward to the next set set of you know the next section of that section, where where he's then, you know, using a more string approach with with the pizzicato like thing, and then he's almost going back to his big band arranging roots in North Texas. The way yes, the thing closes yes. out with the brass section. Yes, exactly. You, you know, know, it's so funny, Jay. I, I've been remembering a lot of things. Um, I, I, you know, I always knew how important this music was to me, both as a musician and as a person, because it's literally changed my life and changed my direction more than once. Um, and that's a lot to say with all the things that are out there that, that do that to some degree to us, but to have somebody's music literally turn you, um, and, fo- and to point another way is very powerful. But one of the things, one of the many stories and things I remembered was a story that was before I had ever heard of Lyle Mays, before anybody outside of North Texas State had heard of him. There was a friend of mine, he was a drummer when I was in college at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and this would have been like 1975, I think. 
and his name was Jeff Cesario. He's gone on to become a very successful stand-up comedian and uh, comedy writer for a lot of different people. Uh, look him up. You'll, you'll, you'll see. But back then, he was a kid in college, and we played in a band together. And he said, I just got back from visiting a friend at North Texas State. There's a guy down there who did everything on their new one o'clock band, um, big band album. His name's Lyle Mays, and he's unbelievable. And it was, that's the, swear to God, that's the first time I ever heard his name. And I just kind of filed it away. I didn't forget because this guy said it in such a way that was like, this is real, you know? Um, And then, you know, many years later, and I think I may have told you this story. I can't remember how much of it I told you. I was playing in L.A. Now, this is now 15 years later, like 88 yep, yep, or 89. Yep, yep. Yeah. And I'm playing in L.A. And I'm, I'm doing, I got called to play at the Beverly Hills Hotel, some private party for a bunch of rich doctors, a uh, Christmas party. And there's like, we knew Helen Reddy that like was going to also do like a little set in the middle um, of the show. I guess these doctors had the money to bring in, you know, I am woman. And, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and so... There's this little soundboard, like the Beverly Hills Hotel, even the main room. It's not very big, you know. There's a soundboard, and there's this guy with like hair down to the to, to uh, down his back, and I'm I'm like five yards away, and I I said to this other guy in my in the band I was in, I said, God, that guy looks just like Lyle Mays, <laughs> and my God, it was Lyle Mays. He was doing sound. <laughs> he was doing sound for Helen yep. Reddy yep. because his girlfriend at the time was the, one of the keyboard players in Helen Reddy's band, and all the other guys in the band I was in, and these were some really good LA musicians, right? They didn't know who Lyle Mays was, and and I was like floored by that. Of course, I knew exactly who he was. And while the rest of these guys chatted him up about everything from fishing to whatever, because Lyle loved to talk about everything, probably except music, (laughs) um, I'd hardly said a word because I was just flabbergasted, frankly. Um, I've always regretted that I didn't, you know, talk to him more. And but then again, I think I I don't know. Maybe I did the right thing because all I would have wanted to talk about was music. And I think if I remember right, he wanted to talk about fishing. <laughs> he did not. And he wanted to enjoy it. Like, I, listen, one time when I was in school, he showed up at the conservatory, you know, at a concert at Jordan Hall at the conservatory. And I'm sitting right in front of him. And I mean, I was really starstruck. And and I talked to him a little bit and I, I, I tried to ask him a question and he very politely says well I, I really want to watch this show i just don't want to you know and and that was it you know i mean it wasn't weird he he acknowledged you know he he i, I said oh, I, i've enjoyed your music for so long you know he thanked me for that compliment but but he didn't want to he, he wasn't in the mood to talk shop and i mean some people are you know there's there's other musicians who God, the second you start talking about their records, they're dying to talk about themselves. I mean, or, or you know, it, I mean, some people will do it when they have to do an interview. They can turn it on and do that. But 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 when they're in when they're in public, they almost it's it's probably a good fifty percent of the celebrities or musicians you meet who do not want to talk shop, even if it's a potentially 
intelligent conversation because, of course, there's all the, you know, there's all the nails on the blackboard conversations you could have with with people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and we've well, all I think, experienced that, you know. Yeah, by all, yeah, we've been on the other end of that, you yeah. know, and and it's you try to go along for a while, and then it it, it just you know. It, it, it gets uncomfortable because you you don't feel like you're a person. You feel like you're some idea of somebody's, you yep, know, I, uh, I right. mean, I don't know. It's not, I mean, you know, anyway, you, you, it's an, it's nice. It's not, not a bad thing, but it's, it's um, in the end, everybody's just a person. And by all accounts, Lyle's ego was very much um, not a part of what his choices were based on. And that alone makes it made him very different than a lot of other people in general and musicians in particular. Um, but, um, well, Jay, I, you know, it's been great talking with you about Lyle and, and our memories and the, in, just some of the impact, cause it's so, so much more we could talk about that Lyle's music via the Pat Metheny group and, and via his own recordings has had on us as a musicians. I know based on what I've seen on social media that, we are just part of a big pool of people who are feeling the 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 same exact way as combination of of shock and sadness deep sadness and but at the same time realizing just how special that time was and that music was and Lyle was and um you know that's anyways it's just been good doing this with you I'm I'm so glad you suggested it. You know, I'm in the middle of doing these podcast series um, about my new album, and but this just felt like the right thing to do right now, and um, and and hopefully, you know, maybe other people will hear this and get some of the same feeling you and I are getting out of sharing, you know, our thoughts and feelings too. So there's always going to be a lot of Lyle and Pat. Oh yeah. Well, you know, Philip Hamilton, uh, I, I conversed with him a little bit on Facebook yesterday. He, Philip Hamilton was an integral part of the Pat Metheny group for quite a while. He said that with Lyle and Pat, it was like they were interchangeable in some ways. They were very different people, uh, but um, the, they it, it, Lyle would pick up the guitar because he played the guitar, and Pat would sit at the piano, and according to Philip, out would come the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> regardless That's of wild. which instrument they were yeah. playing and he said their their synchronicity was more than just the music so i think you're right that lyle will continue in pat he's just a part of yeah. what pat does it's hard to know who was what that's what philip was saying i was asking him about that section in minuano you know is am i right did did lyle primarily write that and he says uh, he said, I honestly don't know. It, with them, you could never tell who did what. He said, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when they, were, when they had a writing session just to see how it happened and how, how it came together. But I think yep. that's the, you're right, you know, and, and so you're right. Pat's still there. And of course, he's doing one, one great piece of work after another. It, 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 it's, it, but there is something special about that time where we were all discovering the Pat Metheny group and discovering Lyle and Pat, and we saw that what I guess to me is like a golden era happen in music in general, but with their music in particular. 